0: So nice when we can find our passage today is John 1 6 to 8 and verse 15 and then we're going to jump over to John 3 22 to 30. I'm going to try to remember to say the address at the beginning of every lecture so when you get online if it doesn't match up then you'll know you're lost or whatever so. We're jumping around a little bit today with the scriptures to get to know who John the Baptist was. And he was a phenomenal man. But we can learn from him two very important things that we can apply to our own lives. The commentary points out that John was a herald of the Messiah. So we're going to look at the word herald, what a herald is and we're going to look at what a witness is. Those two things. Because we can be those two things for Christ in today's world. A herald isn't a word we use very much anymore, is it? Lots of newspapers, the herald examiner and stuff. It basically is a person who carries or proclaims important news. A messenger with important news. Something that is, you need to be aware of this, this is, this, is, this is factual news, factual that we are proclaiming and putting out there. The second word is a witness. A witness is a person who can give a first-hand account of something seen, heard, or experienced, present factual evidence for a purpose of belief. So a witness is called in with a first-hand experience of something to give their account of it, to give evidence to the fact that this really is so. Those two things. So as we look at John, we'll start here in verse 6. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness... To bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. That's our herald. That's our witness. He's going to say something, do something, give an account of an experience so that all might believe through his testimony. He was not the light but came to bear witness about the light. And that is a theme through our whole lesson today. John was not the light but he was a witness to the light. Okay? You don't need a witness for yourself because you're there. A witness comes into play for something else. This was a divine commission for him. He was sent from God. He was sent from God, and we go all the way back to Isaiah 40, because John is fulfilling a prophecy. Isaiah 40 talks about John. And remember when we got into Isaiah, it was all this gloom and doom and judgment and stuff. And then when we got to chapter 40, boom, it changes. And throughout the rest of the book to 66, it's just this positive, reassuring, redemption, Savior that they're talking about. So chapter 40, verse 1 starts with, Comfort, comfort my people. And it goes on into verse 3 that says, A voice cries, In the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed. This was talking about John's mission. Making a road, making a highway, preparing the the way for God to come Onto the world scene. In Mark 1, it also starts to talk about um, quoting Isaiah. Matthew does also. But Mark begins his gospel with, in the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ as the Son of God, verse 2 goes right into quoting that Isaiah passage, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way the voice of one crying in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord make his path straight so John was prophesied about his coming he was sent from God he was an afterthought he was before the beginning of the time happened John was supposed to come to earth to be born and prepare the way for Christ for the Messiah. So who was this John? Well, he was a man. It just says he was a man sent from God. There wasn't anything supernatural about him except for being filled with the Holy Spirit. He was just a human being. Although his um, upbringing was a little unusual, his parents were old. They had never had children, kind of like Abraham and Sarah. We see a little bit of a similarity there also. And then the passage in Luke talks more about how the angel came and spoke to Zechariah when he was a priest in the temple and how he didn't quite... I, I love this part. Some things just jump out of you sometimes. There's his father, uh, Zacharias, in the temple once a year doing... What they do in there. And the uh, angel appears, tells him what's going to happen with his son. His old wife's going to have a baby. Ha, <laughs> ha. Again, there's a little doubt there. And he asks the angel, how can I know this for sure? I mean, how can I know? I mean, wouldn't that be pretty amazing enough, seeing the angel in there, you know? But anyways, he questions it. And the angel makes it so he can't talk until John's born. And then when John comes, John's the voice. Isn't that kind of cool how, you know, there he is and he's the voice and he gets his voice back once he's born. A pronouncement, a declarement, a, a, a saying of the message that's out there. So when John, that's who he was, and when he was born, well, he was 400 years of silence. Remember, between the Old Testament and the New Testament, we have 40, 400 years where no one on earth heard, heard from God. He was pretty silent. We knew that John was coming. There was someone coming to prepare the way. There was a Messiah coming. You know, we had been told about it and told about it and told about it for 400 years. Nothing, Zippo, nothing from heaven. And then here comes John on the scene. He breaks the ice and prepares the way for Christ. He was a divinely appointed time and a divinely appointed message. In Luke 1.8, it says, And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance in Israel. So his childhood was hanging out in the, in the, in the wilderness. He was to prepare the hearts of the people for the Messiah. And he was going to do that through the things he said, through his preaching ministry. It was bold and bold. He was fearless. Now, he didn't grow up in the little towns or anything. He was, grew up in the wilderness. So here he comes into this vast, into amongst people and population with his message. And he was fearlessly confronting people of their sin and calling for repentance. Now, it's, it's very interesting that Mark 1, 5 tells us that he had an enormous impact on the culture at that time. Could you imagine... Anyone being attracted to someone saying to them, you need to repent, you guys, get your act together, Messiah's coming, why would that attract people? They were desperate, they were hurting, they were aware of their own sin, we're aware of our sin. Here was somebody that had an answer to what was going to happen. They weren't just lost they weren't just kind of hopelessly, is he really going to come? Is he really going to be a Messiah? What's going to happen here? It's been 400 years. What's going to happen? We're just, we, we, we just are, are stuck. And so here comes this voice crying that repentance. Mark 1.5 says, all the country of Judea and all, all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the River Jordan, confessing their sins. John was the talk of the town. He was the number one show around. All these people were coming. All oh, that was a, kind of an inclusive word. Now, not all of them got baptized, but all of them heard what was going on. There was a curiosity about this guy. There's always a curiosity. I remember in, high, in Sunday school, the guy, they had the picture of the... Skins that, you know, the animal skins. and the, It always fascinated that he ate grasshoppers and things like that, you know. So, yeah, even to us there's a curiosity that, about that. But all these people were flocking to him. It was a sensational appearance that he was doing there with his bold preaching. So he was heralding, he was talking about Christ. It says in verse 7 that he was a witness. He was a witness and came to bear witness about the light. Being a witness is an important thing. I don't know if any of you have been in a court of law. I had the teens today and um, hang on. You really do need two hands to function, don't you? <laughs> and a mouth, right? <laughs> a witness... When someone is building their case in a court of law, they want to have reliable witnesses. You don't get someone who's a pathological liar to get up there and say something on your behalf. They're going to get thrown out of the court right away. You want someone that has character quality, someone with integrity and knows what they're talking about. They have something called expert witnesses, which is someone who knows what the, what The field that they're going to be talking about is all about. They're educated in it. They're going to give you facts about it. There's experience in there. They are credible. You need to have a witness that is credible. When you you are a witness, it's a very serious thing. Witnessing establishes the truth and gives grounds to believe. A witness is going to establish the truth and give you grounds to believe it. And a witness, when you take a, a stand and you, and, you, and you witness to something, you are, you are committed to that. You're committed to it. If I take my stand in the witness box and testify that such and such is the truth, then I am no longer neutral. I have committed myself. I have committed myself. And when I've been called into give a expert witness on a case um, usually it's with an eating disorder. I am presenting to the judge facts that are known and researched on what, how a eating disorder can affect somebody and the, the results of how that happens and I'm not going to say anything up there that I could be embarrassed about later because someone found out I, that wasn't accurate okay so I need to know what I'm talking about is credible. Because my reputation's on the line with that. So this is the seriousness of a witness. There are nine times in here where John is witnessing about Christ. It's a word that we just, oh, he witnessed to it. But I, wanted, I want you to have the gravity of what that word means. A witness, it's about your character. They have to be credible. They take an oath to tell the truth. And in today's world, we got lies abound. We don't even think twice about lying. You know, people who are supposed to be credible in our society that we vote for and pay for to to make decisions for us, we're kind of scratching our head about the credibility of things out there. So it's an important role to have. If you're going to be a witness to something, you have to take that serious. Your word has got to mean something. So how many witnesses would you need to make a really good case? How many would it take? Deuteronomy 19.15 tells us, A single witness shall not suffice against a person for any crime or for any wrong in connection with any offense that he has committed only on the evidence of two witnesses or of three witnesses shall a charge be established. So not just the witness, but also the number of witnesses you get to build your case. John the Baptist was the first witness on the scene after this silence to witness to Christ, about Christ. But in our Gospel of John that we're studying this year, there are seven more witnesses. The first one, God the Father, in chapter 537. The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. Jesus' own words along with the Father, chapter 818. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. Those are two expert witnesses, don't you think? <laughs> the third one is Jesus' works. John 5:36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And in 10.25, Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe the works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Again, we see that word witness. The fourth one is the scriptures, the Old Testament scriptures. Chapter 5.39, Jesus says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, but it is they that bear witness about me. The fifth one is some people who met Jesus along the way, like the woman at the well in chapter 429. Come and see a man who told me that all I ever did. Can this be the Christ? She was an example of bearing witness to him. The sixth one are the disciples, chapter 1527. Jesus says, and you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. And then we have John himself at the end of this gospel in 21. This is the disciple who is bearing witness about these things and who has written these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And the final one we have is the Holy Spirit. John 15, 26 says, But when the Helper comes, he was talking about ascending into heaven, when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the spirit of truth, who precedes from the Father, he will bear witness about me. Jesus had a slew of witnesses, quality witnesses, to speak on his behalf of who he is. John stresses over and over that Jesus is superior to him. He stressed that he was not the light. Why did he do this? I mean... He was talking about the witness coming. All these Jesus has all these witnesses and stuff, but John over and over says, "I'm not the light. I'm not the light. I'm not the light." Well, remember John was hit of the town. He was the big sensation. You know, people and Satan would have loved to just follow John. He's the one. He's the one. And over in chapter 5:35, Jesus even makes a reference to John. Um, he says. Jesus is saying about John, he was a burning and shining lamp and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. It's a different word there for light. It's not the light. The one that Jesus uses to refer to John is more of a portable light, um, something that, that burns and kind of goes on, out. So there was some confusion that John, wanted to, John the Apostle wanted to clear up about John the Baptist that he was not the light. John also stresses that he ranks before John. Jesus ranks before him. Believe it or not, <laughs> there was a time in the world when younger people really respected older people. There was a time for throughout history, only up till recently, where the elder were revered and younger people really saw elders as having more authority and having more say. You can see how Satan really has gotten hold of our culture and flip flop that. So this, when John was writing this, it hadn't happened yet where we had the flip-flop culture. Okay? John is saying to to the people and to us through the word of God, Jesus is superior. He came before, uh, even though I'm older than him, I'm six months older than him, we all had a big brother who let us know that we weren't very important, right? Um, he, he came before chronologically in the physical realm, but in the spiritual realm we already know that Jesus was there at the beginning creating. But there's also a sense of having the superiority, the authority. He was far more better than Jesus. So these people in that day, well, how can he be better? He's, he, you're older than him and stuff like that. He was, he was putting that in its place too. His entire life was devoted to being a herald and a witness regarding Jesus Christ. He spoke about him, heralding it out, and he bore witness to it. He lived it out that Jesus was the Son of God. So this herald, this testimony, this witness is coming to us in history And letting us also know that he's got a battleground around him. We are on a battleground. It's not our home, but we're on a battleground. So we're heralding, we're talking about Christ, and we're living it out in unfriendly territory. If we look at chapter, or verse 28. No, I want 24, sorry. 24. Now they had been sent from the Pharisees. Okay, Who's coming to talk to him? All these people, these scribes, these Levites, these priests and Levites from verse 19 are coming to John and it says in verse 24 that they were sent from the Pharisees. Here we have John, he was sent from God, one man sent from God proclaiming the gospel, who Jesus is. And here comes this mass population of, of, Pharisees, of scribes, of priests sent from the Pharisees, go out. One, it was a little bit unnumbered there, wasn't it? One against, what, 30 or something like that? But it's the battleground. It's John versus these priests and Levites sent from the Pharisees, and they're going to have a conversation here. But in this, again, we see that John is bearing witness. He's bearing witness. Nine times in our passage, bearing witness to who Jesus is. He never backed down. He never shied away. He was bold. They go to him, and they ask him, first of all, two questions. First of all, who are you? Who are you? Who are you? Who are you, and what are you doing? You can just hear the arrogance in their voices. Now, John's response wasn't, oh, well, I'm John. Didn't you hear about me? My, my, my dad was a, uh, you should have known my dad, Zacharias. Certainly you know about, it was written about me. He was an old man. Remember what happened to him? My mom, Elizabeth, come on, you guys, don't you remember this? They certainly knew that story. But he didn't go there, did he? He didn't talk about who he was, but instead he said who he was not. He did not deny Christ even in that, because who he was wasn't important. Who he was, the essence of who he was, is a witness to Christ. And I want us to get this. People, that's who we are. Children of the living God, number one. Yeah, we're, we're wives and moms and sons and daughters and everything out, whatever. But number one, we're witness to Jesus Christ. So keep that. It's about him. He did not deny him. Matthew ten thirty three. what does Jesus say about people who deny him? Whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. We have got to keep it in the forefront of our mind, our whole mission here. We know that later on, Jesus looked at John and referenced him in Matthew 11:11 11, 11, says that he was the greatest of all those earthly born or well, here's the deal because he thought of himself as so nothing big zero that's what made him so great Leon Morris has a wonderful quote no man is what he thinks he is he is only what Jesus knows him to be let me run you by that again no man is what he thinks he is He is only what Jesus knows him to be. That's pretty powerful, isn't it? So who are you? Who are you? Well, I'm not the Christ. He minimizes himself to being a voice. I'm a voice. I'm a voice. I'm not an important person. I'm only a voice crying out in the wilderness. And so what he's saying here is my message is what's most important about me. It's my message. And again, he quotes Isaiah, make straight the way of the Lord. And a servant, back in the day, before we had all these interstate systems and freeways and stuff, if a king was coming to a town or whatever, they would send out the servants and clear the road, road, knock down the hills, lever the things, fill in the valleys, put a bridge over that river or whatever, creek bed, so the king could walk. And that's what that means, to get all the obstacles out of the way. Clear your heart of all the sin. Repent of all that stuff. Clear the way. Because Jesus is coming. The king of all kings is coming. That's what that verse is referencing. Prepare the way for the Lord. Okay. Okay. He was a dirty man. He was a construction guy. There wasn't anything to him. He was a lowlife. He was a servant. So what are you doing baptizing with water? What is that about? Verse 25, you know, they say, they ask him, what are you you doing? Um, And John answers them, I baptize with water. But among you stands one you do not know. The Jews were very puzzled by this because the Jews did not have to be baptized. Remember, this Gospel of John is going out to the, to the Israelites, to the Jews. And so he's baptizing people. And they're saying, these high-ranking Jews are saying, why are you baptizing Jews? Jews do not have to be baptized. We are the covenant people. You can baptize these Gentiles because they're filthy. They're just heathen Gentiles. You can baptize them, but you're baptizing Jews. Why are you doing that? They were shocked. They didn't need baptizing they were already the kingdom people but John was baptizing those who acknowledged that their sin placed them outside God's saving covenant but again John doesn't linger too long on who he's what he's doing who he is and what he's doing he immediately shifts it back onto Christ he says that there's one among you now quit looking at me Look at him. There's one among you right now who's going to baptize with water and fire. Prepare your hearts because the Messiah is here now. I just love this. It was like kept ricocheting off of him, back onto Christ, back onto Christ, who he is. Prepare the way. Well, the next day in 29, Jesus was coming down and John gets a glimpse of him and all the attentions on John. Here he is doing all this. He's like the talk of the town, the sensation he's baptizing. Droves of people are there to get baptized, all lined up, coming in the water to be baptized. People are being baptized. And then he sees Jesus. And he just immediately pulls everyone's attention over to behold the Lamb of God. Oh my gosh, what a moment in history with that pronouncement of there he is, right at him. The culmination of John's whole ministry, his whole life, was behold the Lamb of God. And the phrase he used at that time was a powerful phrase for that Jewish community. The Lamb of God. They knew about lambs. They knew about sacrifices. They knew about purification. That was a concept that they were very familiar with. Because they knew that there was no forgiveness of sin that could be granted by God apart from an acceptable, suitable substitute dying as a sacrifice. They knew that. They knew a suitable sacrifice had to be made of something to die in order to cover their sins. And here he's pointing to this guy walking down. Moment in history. They knew that Abraham had confidence that God would provide a lamb in place of Isaac. They knew that story. They knew that. And they knew that there was a Messiah coming to deal with sin. But did they really put it together that he had to die? They should have. They thought he was going to come as a king and a conqueror. But they should have seen he needed to die on a cross. He needed to be sacrificed. Now, when John says, Behold the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world, that is not doctrine for universalism. Okay, listen to me here. That does not teach that everyone will be saved. Jesus' sacrificial death is sufficient for everyone's sin. Jesus' death on the cross, absolutely It was efficient for the whole, everyone who ever lived, ever will, whatever, it would have covered everyone's sin for their whole lifetime. It was sufficient for that. But it's only effective on those who choose to believe and accept it. It's only effective. Here's the the potent. Here's what you need to drink. To wash everything away. There's enough in here for everybody, but only those who take a drink get it. Okay, I believe. I, yeah, I believe that's in there, but I'm not going to drink it. It's a bad analogy, but you understand what I'm saying here? It's a powerful, powerful sacrifice he did. Only he could do it, but it's only effective to cleanse our sins for those who really believe and accept it. And then John goes on to say um, that he beheld the baptism that God had told him, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is the one whom baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and borne witness that this is the Son of God. That was the sign. That was like the sealing thing for him. Boom, there it was. It was baptized. Holy Spirit descended like a dove. And the voice of God the Father in heaven cracked open. They heard it. What a moment for him to, to just be so confident, absolutely unswerving. He was before, but now even more that Jesus is the Son of God, right there in the middle of the battlefield. Remember who was there? Right in the middle of the battlefield. I love it when God sets it up like that, steps onto history, and boom, when all his enemies are out there watching. He's going to do it again, isn't he? Real soon here. All right, let's finish this up with chapter 3. Moving over to chapter 3. Verse 22. After these things, after this, okay, after what? After he miraculously changes the water into wine. That's already happened. Remember, we're just jumping ahead. We're going to go back. After Jesus cleansed the temple during the Passover and after he had a conversation with Nicodemus, those were three important events that happened between John 1 and John 3, where we're at. After that, Jesus left Jerusalem to spend time with his disciples in the countryside. So he leaves. He pulls himself out of there out of jerusalem and he goes up into the countryside to spend time with his disciples and it was an area where there was a lot of water still baptizing going on john's out there john's baptizing over in one little area and jesus is there with all of his disciples and the people that are following him and and those people are baptizing too So a lot of people followed Jesus. He was gaining momentum. Large crowds were following Jesus and were being baptized. And then John the Baptist was also there, and he continued to baptize people too. John was continuing to preach repentance and point to Christ. And Christ was there with his message, and they were all repenting and being cleansed and baptized and being followers of Christ. In verse 25, there's a little parenthesis there. I love it when they have these. It's like, okay, why is that there? For John had not yet been put in prison. Why is that there? Do we really need to know that? Obviously, he's not in prison, right? Because he's here baptizing. Well, again, John the Apostle knew that there might be some conflict with the other writers of the Gospels Matthew and Mark and Luke because it could have been messed up where the sequence of events, the chronological order of things could have been misunderstood. So to avoid any kind of confusion to the reader, John is the apostle, is putting this in here to let you know that this event took place between Jesus's temptation and John's imprisonment, okay? So we can look at it chronologically. Most important, this conversation, this debate out there where springs of lots of water are, the significance of it being put into John's gospel is this. It is the overlap. It is the passing of the baton. It is John saying you know, the prophet speaking after all these years coming and pointing to Christ, and now he's passing off the baton. It's him. It's Jesus. This is this is the culmination. This is the whole purpose I hear. My job's complete with this. What overwhelming joy there is with that. His disciples are jealous, though, aren't they? They're envious. They're troubled. They don't get this. You kind of wonder if you they've really got the message, right? What was he really saying, pointing to Jesus, and yet there's a little bit of a you know, favoritism going on there. They were even unwilling to say Jesus' name. They say, they refer to him, but they don't even say his name. 26, Rabbi, he, he, who has, he who was with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing. They couldn't even say Jesus' name. So we always know that there's always wolves and sheep closing all the way around, right? It's kind of in the mix. But John says this. He doesn't miss a beat. He is so overwhelmed that Jesus is here. He's not even bothered by his declining popularity. He actually found great joy in it because that was his mission. It's very hard humanly to start something, to initiate something, to build something up, to create something, to get something going, to birth it and get it going, and then to kind of let it go, hand it off and back off. We have a possessiveness with things sometimes. We see it in the mission field a lot. People get a mission going or whatever and, and an ownership or a church plan or something. You know, some people are called just to plan it and then just kind of let it okay you guys got this and let it go and to let go of something that you invested so much in we don't see this with John his humility is so overwhelming that he is great joy for the fact that he can pass it on that Christ is here this is what he's been talking about and he tells his disciples he says nothing that I've told you You cannot possibly take anything I've said and misunderstand from what I've said. I keep telling you I'm not the light, I'm not the light, I'm not the light, I'm not Christ. It's him, it's him, it's him. So get it straight in your head. All genuine ministry is Christ-centered. We do not get anything. He says a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from above. If if we do anything good, it's not because of us. We know what's in our heart, the depravity of man. Anything good that comes from us is from God. There's only one good, and that is God. Even our desires that are, are good, that's from God. Any kind of joy, peace, anything good, there is no one good, no not all. So anything that happens good is from him. And this is what John is saying here. You guys, I'm not doing this because I'm such a wonderful guy and I'm a good public speaker, right? Or I, wear, I have gooey clothes and this, you know, all these, uh, whatever, I eat bugs. It's not because of who I am. It is God allowed me and gave me these things and, and all for the purpose to worship him, to point to him. And then he has the analogy, we'll just close it here. He's the friend of the bridegroom who arranges marriages. And here's, here's the analogy he leaves it with. We don't have a lot of this these days. It's more for, I think the women do more of this stuff than the, the men do. Um, but back in this culture, the bridegroom's uh, best man, his friend, would help him get married, would help him arrange. And a lot of it was him doing the preparation, him building the house, him doing all he needed to do to lay out what he needed to do to bring this bride home. And it was a lot, because he couldn't bring his bride home unless his father said, okay, you built her a house, is it okay? That's the whole verse in John 14 that we'll get to. He's preparing a place for us, and only the father knows when he's going to come, okay? So this is Jewish culture. They were getting ready, a place ready to bring his bride home to. So that friend was excited with him too and getting there and pulling things up and so when he the job is finished and he's there he has great joy for the bridegroom my joy is complete and now it's I'm just going to disappear just disappear I'm going to detach myself from this because they're all going to follow Jesus my joy is complete so what a witness that is to us, to, to be heralds, to talk about it, especially in today's culture, because in some towns you can get shot and killed for it. So will we take the challenge and continue to speak about Christ and to live it out in very hostile territory? God, thank you for John... Thank you for the words that have been preserved through time to let us know about him. Thank you for your Holy Spirit that empowers us to live accordingly. Oh, may we just bend our wills to yours, God, and let your light shine so very bright that you are almighty God, Jesus Christ, the Son of the living God. Amen.